0: our listeners. We've got a packed out pub. Give us a cheer. There we go. I got some feedback Graham today that apparently when listeners are listening back, they find the pub's a bit rowdy. So try and not be too rowdy. Well, we're (laughs) really grateful that you are here and not in the jungle, Tim. Thanks for coming over from Westminster. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. So Tim, to sort of kick off the
1: interview proper, we thought we'd start with a question that helps us sort of get to know you a little bit. Okay. So Tim Farron, your life, if it was going to be made into a film, what would be the three key scenes that we would need to be including in that film? How
2: serious do you want me to be? I Ooh. mean, it's
1: entirely up to you. Okay. It could be a rom-com or it could be a documentary okay. sort of PM. I mean, it's entirely up
2: to you. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll pick one of them serious. Uh, and the first two are important. I think the first is, just because I think it would probably make good telly, it would be uh, me and two mates and a uh, sound engineer, stroke producer, stroke former Recording studio owner breaking and entering into a recording studio in Preston in 1987. Okay, um, brackets. Me and my mates didn't realise we were breaking and entering. Okay, uh, right, he okay. lied to us, so we, we were in our terrible band. Um, uh, was, there was a there was a cafe, and down below there was a recording studio. Um, and we booked to go with a guy called Steve Hesketh so I've named him now uh, to go to his recording studio overnight so we were going to meet him at 10pm because we thought that's how rock and roll works (laughs) and we ended up in this uh, recording studio he said he'd forgotten his keys so we had to kind of jerry his way in it wasn't hard but we we did break in and then had to go downstairs and downstairs was where all the kit was there so the recording studio was just as you might imagine but there were a load of potatoes sacks of potatoes and other veg and he said oh that's just we have that I let the cafe upstairs put their stuff like this down here because it's good for the acoustics, he said. Um, And it turned out, you know, sometime later on that he had given up the lease or indeed failed with his rental payments uh, on the basement of the cafe and the cafe had reclaimed it off him but his kit was still there and so to make a bit of extra money overnight he just broke back into his recording studio (laughs) with three 17-year-olds who thought they were being very cool. So, I mean, I don't think that tells me very much about me but it was fun. I love it. We we recorded five songs. (laughs) They Great were all, opening they were scene. All terrible breaking, an entry. breaking into a cafe. Okay, scene one. I mean, so I was brought up in Preston. However, my very very cool cousins, are the only people in my family I knew who went to football matches, lived in Blackburn. So I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan. Uh, I was, however, at the Millennium Stadium whilst Wembley was being rebuilt when Rovers beat Spurs 2-1 to win the League Cup final. Um, My daughter was five months old and she woke up when Andy Cole scored the winner. Um, (laughs) uh, So that that was a great moment, a great family moment. I now am resigned to the fact that some Faustian deal was done with me subconsciously when I was a youngster, which was... Rovers are going to be really epic for a few years, and then they're going to be a source of total frustration for the rest of your life. Will you accept that? And I've clearly said yes. I will have the Premier League. I'll have a run in the Champions League. I'll have a few years in Europe. I'll have winning the League Cup final, and then we'll be terrible for the rest of my life. And that's you <laughs> You say that. Uh, but if you, if I had been conscious, I would still have taken it. Brilliant. You're on the serious one now, don't you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> All right. So um, about a year after the breaking and entering um, into a cafe. My mum, so we were very poorly travelled uh, as a family, so this was a real shock to us. Uh, I went to a sixth form college, came back from that college towards the end of my A-levels one you know afternoon. Uh, my mum, who at that point was a lecturer at Preston Poly, but now the University of Central Lancashire, and she said um, that her and about a third of the department, the business study department, were going to be seconded to Singapore. And I joined them, me and my little sister, uh, who was 16, I'm still very, very close to, but when we got there, um, we discovered we were in a three-bedroom house. There were four of us, my mum, me, my sister, and a friend of ours, Ian, who was a family friend, but not my mum's partner, but they thought he was. And so, right, four into three, who's sharing with who? Um, And I wasn't sharing with my sister, so in the end, um, I went in basically the storeroom. The previous tenants of this house had also been academics at this college. They were Christians and they'd left their books behind. And, and then, you know, you're stuck. It rains a lot in Singapore. It's very hot sometimes, a beautiful place. I ended up reading some of the books and the first books well first of all i picked up a book um which is about uh, you know all the god stuff and i wasn't interested in the god stuff um i it was all frightening but there's one on sexual ethics oh that's interesting then in total boredom and frustration after a couple of weeks i started reading stuff that makes the case for christianity and at some point in the early hours of a morning in the early august of 1988 when i was 18 i thought oh flippin heck it's true and i quite reluctantly but very clear that it was the right thing to do, put my trust in Christ and became a Christian. And it has not been plain sailing ever since.
0: <laughs> We're going to come on to that. Thanks. I feel like we've got a nice potted history of Pot, three... Music, football and God. Exactly. Yeah. There we go. That's all
2: you need. Covered all the bases. Nice, But
0: no yeah. politics. So... <laughs>
2: Overarching.
0: Okay, okay. So I, I'm just personally interested what it's been like in Parliament the last couple of months. We want the inside scoop, basically. What it's felt like. Can you
2: give us any sound bites, any stories? Well, I mean, I guess that the the night before Liz Truss resigned, you find that a lot of Conservative MPs don't trust other Conservative MPs. And so they will unburden themselves to well the likes of me, and it's my job not to now rat on them. But, uh, so I'm not going to I'm not going to name anybody. But there was you know, there's a clear sense that people have been living in a in a fantasy land for a long time. Uh, I mean, obviously you take what I say with a pinch of salt, and there are there are arguments for and arguments against Brexit. But I do think Brexit is a a manifestation of a politics that just believes nonsense rather than an, anything that's based upon any evidence and uh, and a and, and ir, ir, irrational politics Mm. and and emotional politics and it's possible i think maybe what you could argue um, is that the the budget which was based on ignoring anything that experts tell you is a reminder that sometimes you do need to listen to experts. And mm. wisdom is quite a good thing. And lacking it in, in leadership positions is a, is a serious problem. So I guess you've got all sorts of things going on. You've got the Labour Party who, I think, feel, oh, golly, we might be in government after all these years. Uh, you've got Liberal Democrats who are feeling relatively positive and feeling we can grow and win seats that we haven't won for several years. You've got the SNP who both do and don't want to have a a referendum instantly. Um, They feel that if there is a left of centre government in Westminster, the chances of there being a referendum that is won north of the border is that much less. And if I was Keir Starmore and Davey, I would be heading north of the border and just saying, look, you know, you can get rid of this lot by the messiest divorce you've ever seen that will make Brexit look like a cakewalk or you can just vote for us. It'll be a lot more straightforward. So there's a lot of SNP people think seeing that their best chance is receding. So they're very jumpy. And then Conservatives, they, they obviously range from panic-stricken to angry to delusional to to you know hopeful that things might turn around, which of mm. course they might do. One of the things that I've learned in recent times that politics changes much quicker than it used to. So the idea that you know, you're 20-odd percent behind the polls and you're finished is not necessarily true anymore the Tories could come back guys they could
1: my goodness and Tim I'm interested so I work for a big company there's quite a lot said about them in the news quite frequently Mm. and I'm always struck by reading what's in the news versus seeing what I see when I'm on the inside do you have the same thing I mean when you read it in the newspapers you're like yeah that's pretty accurate reflection or do you hear and see a lot of stuff that goes on that is a different picture
2: when you walk around parliament there are journalists everywhere lobby journalists are allowed to be in many places all good people, um, and they are also... In, in the same way that Conservative MPs would unburden themselves to me, um, and I wouldn't go and rat on, raton. hopefully they tell me things like that because I think they can trust me. Having said that, they go on and unburn themselves to journalists who will then print it. <laughs> and so, and you, often when you read newspapers, particularly when you have seen individuals go up to people like Christopher Hope from The Telegraph or what have you, and, and then the next day, sources close to X said, why? I know exactly who X is because I saw him talking to Chris Hope over a coffee. Yeah. And, and so... So sometimes you think, yes, it does resonate, but people don't talk to journalists by accident. One of two things are happening. They've either got an agenda or they've got a psychological need, and sometimes both. Sometimes you want to do down a, one person or to uplift another or, or get a message out there, and sometimes you just feel the need to unburden yourself. And And so often I will see stuff written in the papers, and I think that's a result of someone having an emotional crisis. That's somebody who's unburdened themselves without an agenda. They just felt they need to talk to somebody, and there was a journo who was prepared to listen. You know, lovely journos, but it would have been far safer and healthier if they if they talked to me, then I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> <have been
1: better.
0: laughs> just we'll talk to ahead.
2: Tim. Tim, basically, the theme of tonight, the
1: really sort of the overarching big question we want to ask you is, what does it take to be a leader in the modern world?
2: Well, I'm the last person you should ask. Okay, <laughs> good to know up front. <laughs> you didn't I mean, mention that weeks I, ago, yeah, were we? Yeah, yeah, no, no,
0: no. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Although, having said that, as is the case with many things, having done a thing, you'd be better at it now, having done it, mm. than when you started off. So, so maybe I, I can, not that I have any desire to be... Uh, leader again, I, so I think there are a bunch of things. So clarity and credibility are two important things in in leadership. You need to be very clear about what the, what is the thing that you're seeking to achieve, uh, and not a list of seven things. It's going to be really one, and then you have to have the credibility in order to be able to deliver it. In other words, you can have the best plan in the world, but if you, if no one takes what you say seriously, then why should they listen? Why should you get? Why should you get anything done? And so, so for me, in the first instance, remember the Liberal Democrats have been absolutely wiped out. We've gone down from fifty-seven MP to eight. I was the only one of the eight that had got a majority of the votes cast in their constituency. It was an absolute total wipeout. So my my job was to basically try to stop a party evaporating into nothing. So you had to pick, in the first instance, was to pick refugees. A, because I was passionate about it and I meant it. And B, because I thought nobody else would talk about it because they're too scared. And C, I just thought People who are liberals will be inspired by that, and they'll want to get on board to try to fight for a better deal for refugees. And so we did. And then halfway through, Brexit happened. Mm. And I thought, you know what? I can't look my kids in the eye if I don't do everything within my ability to fight against this flipping nonsense. And so I did, and it trebled the party's membership. But we had to be very, very clear about what we were doing. Did I have credibility? Well, I guess by taking the position nobody else did, you kind of got it. But there's some more important things, I think, than that in the end. Wisdom and integrity Mm. are critical. We'll go with integrity. Integrity is partly credibility, because if you are not trusted then you will not be believed. Your message will not land. And if you, many politicians in history, you could probably name them and I wouldn't need to repeat their names who may have had a great message, but if they're not trusted, people have their fingers in their ears and that's the end of it. And A, but also integrity matters anyway, because it has an outworking in terms of your values and the way that you govern, the way that you lead. But wisdom is crucial. So what is what is wisdom? So a mate of mine teaches A-level psychology and she tells me, uh, and some of you may know this already, that there's four stages of learning. There's uh, unconscious incompetence, So you don't know what you're doing, but you don't even know that you don't know what you're doing. Um, Then there's conscious incompetence. Then there's conscious competence. Unconscious competence. And I reckon that by the time you get to the fourth one, you're arrogant enough to slip round to being unconsciously incompetent again. <laughs> and I think most of us, most of us are on the cusp between unconscious incompetence and conscious incompetence. And the crucial thing is to remain consciously incompetent. In other words, have a sufficient humility to know that somebody can teach you something. Yeah. Um, because if you don't have that, yeah. you will never seek advice. So but there is a second part of it. There's being humble enough to know that you need it and therefore seeking it. Then there is judgment where you pick the right people to give you that wisdom. Where do you go to get that wisdom? And that does—that that is something which is a bit more difficult to pin down. But those, I would say, credibility, clarity, integrity, wisdom. Love that. Which, yeah. If you were
0: now... Having to interview for the next PM. How would you go about that? What would you really be looking for? I know you've said your three words, but how would you actually find that out?
2: I guess how do you persuade people? That's one thing that's I don't I've not seen persuasive. Inspiring is important. Yeah. I think there's two I mean, it's, a, it's an easy thing to say this, but let's say there's two forms of leadership. One is where you see where the crowd's going and you run around the front and say that's where you're headed anyway. Um, and the other is where you decide to stake out a position, you persuade people to follow you. And I don't see enough of that. Too many politicians, either via their guts or more, um, almost more reprehensibly via very expensive polling and research, realise where the electorate's going and think, okay. well, I'll go there too. Okay. And sometimes, if you're wise and you know where the country needs to go, you need to persuade people to follow you that this is the right way to go yeah so what that. is the right way to go I and mean, that's that's the next question
1: so tim sort if if you look back in history i mean who, who would you call out as sort of great great leaders that, that we've had who you who you think exemplify a, a role model of of true leadership
2: oh that's a good question i mean i if i look back and see um the, do you know? I'll, I'll just randomly pick out Gordon Brown. Uh, not that he is perfect by any means. Not that he's perfect <laughs> by any means. But for, to, first of all, um, so there's a there's sacrificial element to all this. You read and you'll have seen all the various commentaries about uh, written by both sides, of course, as to why Blair became leader of the Labour Party and not Brown. But he could. He, Brown had seniority. Arguably, mm. Brown had first claim on it. Uh, and you can make a case, and I would say on balance, more than 50% anyway, that Brown's major motivation was that the Labour Party was to win, even though it would cost him the premiership. Brown would have won the 1997 general election, maybe by not quite as much, but he would have won it. And he would have been Prime Minister and been Prime Minister for at least two terms rather than the half a term that he was. And he was a very competent... Chance the exchequer because he's a man motivated by the right reasons, by the right things, but was psychologically complex. A number of the decisions he made, and particularly when he fell out with Blair, became not even self-serving, but not public-serving. But I would say in the early part, from let's say ninety-four through to. The Iraq War. Brown was somebody who secured power, sought it for the right reasons, and was personally sacrificial, which is rare. Now you might disagree with Brown, but I'm I'm, I'm struggling to find other people who I think I could say the same thing about.
0: Okay, but this is this is our issue, though. How would Brown get on today? Because I feel like since then, now we need to be entertained. We we need to please the
2: crowd, and like he's not. you know, he's not I, a crowd pleaser, is yeah, he? Yeah, I've got two, two things to say to that. The, 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 fir- the first is, uh, 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 when we saw that cloud yeah. about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer about eight or nine months ago, the big word in the middle of the Johnson cloud was liar. But the big yeah. word in the middle of the uh, Starmer cloud was boring. Yes. And if I was Starmer, I'd have taken that on the chin and thought, yeah, good, Britain could do with a bit of boring. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I'm not convinced that actually not being massively charismatic, and I'm not, I'm not saying that Starmer is boring, but he's, you know, he's, he's not a performer in the way that Johnson is. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily need to matter. People okay. forget William Hague was an outstanding leader of the opposition when it came to Prime Minister's questions. Outstanding. Ran rings around Blair every single week. He still got annihilated because yeah. it's not the only thing that matters. Mm. The second thing I'd say is that we think, we tend to think in the last, let's say, 10 years, that having the right, you know, there's there's a. Prefab Sprout's second single was The Devil Has All The Best Tunes. And we often think The Devil Has All The Best Tunes, somehow only the bad guys have good emotional messages. This doesn't need to be the case. I mean, the person who was a centre-left person, and you look at, in particular, Barack Obama, he was a man who, who was, you know, I would say, was broadly on the right side of politics, from my opinion anyway, um, but also had all the right tunes. This is a mm. man who had the cadence, the oratory, the ability to... Fixate an audience and move it from one place to another. I my, my criticism of, of Obama is similar to my criticism of Blair. They didn't realise how much power they actually had, crowd power, to move people from one place to the other. All the same, don't underestimate how much a difference Obamacare makes to the poorest Americans because he was able to use his rhetorical power, his ability to shift people, inspire people, make the hairs on the back of the neck stand on end and feel something here and get them to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise. You know, any kind of state Healthcare care in America. It's, it's communism, and yet he achieved it to a degree, nothing like our NHS, but far better than what was the case before. So we shouldn't assume that emotional messages are the preserved of the reactionary and the populist. It's entirely possible to be rational, to be moderate, to be progressive, to be reasonable, and to be emotionally intelligent as well. And I would love there to be somebody like that.
1: But so just, just to follow up on that, so a modern example, perhaps, is Theresa May. She clearly very different sort of character from Boris Johnson or Liz Truss but and, and she was probably if you had this cloud a bit more towards the Starmer sort of boring end of things yeah. which again feels kind of not a bad thing in someone running the country what, what happened with her then why, why did she sort of fail well,
2: so um, I've got to be careful not to be too clouded by the fact that I actually quite like her because right. I think if I was going yep. to analyse her premiership, it, it wouldn't—I wouldn't give a ten out of ten. Okay. Um, but as, as some of you know, um, I was—I so was at university in Newcastle in the late eighties, early nineties. Got a call one afternoon to our house phone. There were no mobiles in those days. <laughs> uh, the phone goes. Uh, my mate John picks it up, and he said, "There's a there's a woman on the phone." Is that a girl? He said, "No, no, it's, it's definitely a woman." And it was it was a. a A rather elderly lady who was the secretary of the North East Lib Dems. And to cut a long story short, she offered me the chance to stand for a parliamentary seat, that we had absolutely zero chance of winning, which is North West Durham. So I rocked up there, and the Tory candidate was a woman called Theresa May. Oh. Uh, we both got annihilated, you know, were very, very hard, and only missed out by 20,000. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but she And she lost by about 14,000, but anyway. I thought she was difficult, I thought she was a bit awkward, but I thought she was decent, okay, is my general take. And I, and I think she's been one of the most remarkable former Prime Ministers in terms of having authority, striking only occasionally, but with Great venom when she does. I mean, So why did she not succeed? I think she became leader a little bit like Rishi Sunak without a contest. And that's dangerous, I would say. Nevertheless, I think Theresa May had that strength up against Jeremy Corbyn. It looked like it wasn't a daft thing to do to call that early election in 2017. And strong and stable. And then it was her manifesto where what was referred to as the dementia tax was in. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden it went from, uh, I think it was Michael Crick who coined the phrase from strong and stable to, was it weak, weak and feeble or weak, yeah. and, weak and wobbly, weak and wobbly. Um, and suddenly she fell from grace. She then of course, managed to cobble together a majority with the Democratic Unionist Party, but she was always up against the Conservative Party that didn't know what it wanted. Whatever it wanted had, was more extreme than whatever it was she proposed. And they wanted, you know, various impossible things, like getting out of the European Union, like keeping Northern Ireland comfortably within the United Kingdom whilst not being in the single market. All of those things are not possible at the same time. Yeah, um, Obviously not Not yeah. possible. You can't, you know, you can have, have as many fantasies as you like, you have to give on at least one of those, and she she tempted to try to make that work, but there were too many fantasists and they wouldn't have it.
0: There's your answer, Graham. I'm more interested generally, what you think trips up politicians that you're aware of as well.
2: I always think that the um, the vice that most trips up politicians is not the kind of seedy stuff that we read about in the tabloids. Yeah. Or even the money and although that does happen sometimes, it's pride, it's vanity. Okay somebody once said politics is showbiz for ugly people and um, and, and it's you know you, so we you know, we want we want to be on the telly we have got some deep psychological need to be loved and <laughs> adored and in the public eye but we've okay. got no discernible talent you know we we never made it past breaking into a into a rec- recording studio we never actually made it and so this is a good second or third to be an actual celebrity um, i'm not sure if that's entirely true but there's, the, you look at for example how important lots of politicians particularly who are on the retired Side or towards the end of their careers, how much job they put by status. Whether you're in the Privy Council, have you got an MBE? Are you going to go in the Lords? Have yes. you been given this gig or that gig? So there is great pride there. C.S. So yes, Lewis said that pride is the gateway sin to everything else because it's all about being self-serving and looking after me, 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 me. So humility must be the gateway of virtue, mustn't it? And uh, so I think pride is the is the thing that trips up most politicians in the end. So just generally.
0: Would you say we, as a society, get the leaders we deserve?
2: Well, to a degree. We're a democracy, so I think we have to take responsibility to a degree for the people that we put in in office. I think the media are massively powerful. It's a tricky one because we we celebrate and rightly celebrate having a free media in this country. But let's be honest. I I would argue that the journalists that are in and around Westminster probably Probably break down politically, largely like the electorate as a whole does. But if you look at the print media, which via social media is still hugely, hugely significant, um, the print media is about eighty to eighty-five percent, not just right-wing, really quite right-wing. And so there is a sense in which you know people, we, all of us, you know, we fish don't realise they're in water; it's normal. Yeah. We don't yeah. think about the air that we breathe yeah. and the culture we're in. We might think we're terribly independent individuals who think for ourselves. Yes, but we are all affected by the culture that we swim and breathe in. And so there's. A, I think there's a sense in which the media does... Create issues. So, for example, I get, I'll I'll knock on doors and people will tell me it's an outrage of so many asylum seekers. You think, well, why do you think that? Mm. You think it because it's in the media, despite the fact that there are 17 countries in the EU who per capita take more asylum seekers than we do. Mm. And the reason there is an asylum seeker hostel in your patch is because the flipping government hasn't processed 96% of them. Yeah. Um, I saw your
0: speech in Parliament about that. You nailed it. it, You nailed it. But
2: I get angry about that kind of stuff because it's dishonesty that then leads to people holding opinions that are not And I partly, largely, don't blame the person on the side of the door, but a little bit I do. Okay, because we we have critical faculties, and it's you know we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, on what basis is this person telling me this? Yes. Um, What truth is there in this? And the difficulty is, I'm talking about. And when I say mainstream media, I normally mean that as a, in, a, in a good way. And, but what they do, by behaving the way they do, is they push people to dis- distrust all formal sources. Mm. And then you get people going down all sorts of internet rabbit holes and believing all sorts of nonsense. Yeah. And that's where fake news becomes a thing and where truth is the first casualty of the culture war.
0: So we kind of get the leaders we deserve, but also it's kind of
2: not our fault because of the media. Well, no, I don't want to blame the media, but I think that we I, I, our, our our culture produces leaders. And as I said, you know, the, the most leaders, I'm afraid, see which way the crowd's going and run round to the front. Yeah, fine, uh, exactly. And so that it, you know, so we that we get the leaders that you would predict our culture would produce. I'm afraid.
1: So, Tim, maybe to move on a little bit more mm. to you as a leader, what are the values that guide you in in being a leader, and where do you derive those from?
2: Well, I always say to anybody who's involved in any kind of politics or community work at all that they are a leader. Everybody's, everybody exercises leadership and you all lead by example, whether you realize it or not. Um, by bad example, by mixed example, by good example. So it's a fundamental thing as a leader. You must lead by example. If you never ask anybody to do a thing that you would not do for your, for yourself. I would, I so I'd argue, um, you know, if I have to look back over my time in politics, and I joined the Liberals at 16, volunteer for many years, became a councillor, uh, became a candidate for a seat I actually could win and then didn't, but then did. Um, and so 17 and a half years I've been in Parliament, I was the party's president for four, the four, four of the years that we were in coalition government and then leader for, for two of them. And, you know, obviously it's a journey. I think there's, I talked earlier on about pride being the, the kind of, the thing that trips politicians up. I think ambition is not a bad thing for people to have in any part of life if you're a christian that ambition should be to do good to serve others and i i, I like to think that is how i try to live my life now for all the, my flaws i think there's a sense in which that i made a an assessment at some point in the five years before i became the party leader that the kind of party that would need leading after the next general election would be the kind of party that I would have the skill set to lead. In other words, if Nick Clegg had stepped down during the coalition, I don't think I had the skill set to become deputy prime minister then. Did I have the skill set to rabble, rouse, and to inspire a broken bunch of people who'd just been annihilated in an election? I thought, yes, I probably have got that skill set. Come on, um, And so, you know, yeah. So I'm um, I'm Mike Bassett when we've been relegated. You know, Yeah! The, we're, um, so I think that's true. So there was a kind of cool not calculated, but an honest assessment of what my skill set was, there was also a level of vanity. You know, I've been okay. liberal Democrats for all these years. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Why wouldn't I want to be leader? And I think one of the problems I uh, observe is... In all walks of life, not just in politics, but politics especially, is that people want to move to the management, the leadership job, because it's the step up, not because they have the skill set to actually manage or lead. You know, the the, the Peter Principle, you know, you're you're good at job A, so you get job B. You're good at job B, so you get job C. You are terrible at job C, so you stay there. And there is a danger that people get promoted to positions because of the thing they were good at last. Um, Now, I, I would argue that I would be a better leader now than I was then, but I'm not pitching to do it. In the end, I go back to, for me as a Christian, um, I know that I am playing to an audience of one, which means if the crowd is going that way, I will try to persuade them otherwise. But I kind of hope I'll have the honesty to say, all right, you're going that way and I'm going that way. And that's the end of me. <laughs> but okay. nevertheless, that's the right thing to do. Somebody put Jesus up there as the perfect leader. And one of the reasons why he absolutely is, is because he is totally countercultural as, into the, as the idea of leadership that we have. This is a person who did not put himself first. This is a person who sacrificed for others. This is a person who, despite Owning and creating two trillion galaxies and everything in between and speaking them into existence lived a lowly life, not just to set an example, but to do a particular job. And that was to take our punishment and to do the thing that no other being could have done. We can model ourselves on Jesus as leaders only if we understand that only... With real humility and service of others, even to the extent that you will sacrifice everything, can you truly be a leader? Generals who sit in mansion houses, miles from the front, are shockingly awful leaders. Generals who will go and put themselves in harm's way with their men and women, they're great leaders. Boom. Practically
1: speaking then, talk to us about times in your career where that has really come home to roost. So when when have you had to make decisions that have been challenging for you because of your conviction in that way.
2: I mean, loads, if I'm honest with you. I think this sounds too self-aggrandising, but I voted against tuition fees because I thought you shouldn't tell lies. One well, of the odd things was, having voted against the, the trebling of tuition fees by the coalition, I then went around the country making the case for it because I thought, actually, there is an argument for this, not the actual trebling, but the way in which people would pay it back. It's basically a graduate tax. It's better than the system that it replaced. If you're not going to have free education, it's better than the system it replaced. And people would listen to me because I'd voted against it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's what I I said about mm. having, if you can maintain trust, but you. People will sometimes put a pledge in a manifesto that they can't achieve, particularly in coalition, you're having to trade some bits of it. Mm. But if you make a specific pledge to abolish something that you then treble, I'm sorry, you can't do that. And that made me very unpopular with some of my colleagues. What was the phrase that somebody said? And I, I'm nearly sure I know who said it, but it was, it was one of these, you know, unattributables in the press. Well, what, what What is there about the treachering, God-bothering little shite not to like? Uh, was the thing... <laughs> was the thing <laughs> was the thing said about me because of the reason i give for <laughs> uh, for voting against the travelling tuition fees the other thing is actually probably stepping down as leader arguably the most useful thing i've ever done in in a cosmic sense was um, was to, to to step down as leader because the bottom line was that that election was a 49 day election and the first eight of them were terrible and then the media moved on but for me the sense that yeah Mr. Farron, I want to know what you think about these things that it says in the Bible about sex, sexuality, about abortion, all those kind of things, which are really difficult issues. And my inability to deal with them in a way which sort of was satisfying, you know, one way or another. I remember, so we, we had... Um, uh, during the general election, leaders have coaches. You know, we've seen leaders battle buses. Uh, we had the crystal ballast bu- uh, bus relivered, all in yellow. And I was at the back in the kind of um, the manager's pod. Um, I used to call it the Pardieu boudoir. Um, <laughs> I the Pardue boudoir about a week and a half into that 49-day election, seven-week election. And I remember, I, I kind of, I'd, I think I'd prayed about it. I'd certainly talked to my mate Paul, who's my pastor up in, uh, up in Kendall. Uh, but the decision was entirely, entirely mine that I shared with no one apart from Paul and my wife, was that, look, it looks to me as though there's kind of three options here. I can either carry on trying to bat away these difficult questions and just be a terrible leader, because all the attention will be on theology and not on Brexit or the NHS or our messages. And if yeah. you're the leader of what was then the fourth party and you've got a minute's coverage a day, what? it's like you having one advertising hoarding and some blighter vandalising it every single day. Your message is not getting across. So there's that. Or I can basically become apostate and pretend that I don't really follow Jesus and it's just a private thing and don't worry about that kind of thing. So rubbish leader or, you know, apostate Christian. I thought they are two terrible choices. There is a third. And I just decided, well, I will I will step down as leader once this election's out of the way. I took the view that I'm vainglorious and all this. I've got Gladstone's party to lead. or got Gladstone's party to save. We're going down the plug hole, you know. Yeah. Um, there's one opinion poll that showed us losing every single seat. In the end, by the way, we went up by 50% yeah. it wasn't so bad, but I, and I resigned about a week later, but I made the point of making it clear why it was. Cause let's, you know, if you tell the story, I joined at 16, I'd been, you know, a student activist, um, NUS, uh, student union president. I'd been a counselor. i uh, I'd been a candidate. I'd been a MP shadow cabinet president leader. And then you give it up. What would make you give up a thing like that? Something better. That's what you give it up for. And um, something so amazing, so divine, it, dev- it demands my heart, my soul, my life, my all, um, which is following Jesus, which seemed to me that's the better thing to do. And so plug of my first book, A Better Ambition. It's a better ambition to live your life for Jesus. It doesn't matter if you don't amount to anything in the eyes of the, of, of the world. You cannot take it with you. And so the great blessing is, I mean, if I look like, and brackets, I really did, if I look like a rabbit in the headlights during that questioning, I'm roadkill now, so it's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. But, I mean, I'll animated roadkill, and 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 so you. But, and, and if the cat fits, wear it. So I, my job is not. My job is fundamentally as a Christian. And if I was to advise any person about to stand for Parliament, what is it to be a Christian in politics? It is not to force people who are not Christians to live as though they were counterproductive and not sanctioned in the Gospels. I don't think at all. It is to serve people. It's to be an example. It's to be a good leader, to be sacrificial, to do the things that people need for them, to be the voice for the voiceless. So I love doing that. Um, and that's my fundamental act of being a Christian is to just be a decent MP. But it's also to be a Z-list celebrity and do stuff like this yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, come
0: right. on. Okay, one final question. Yeah, go for it. Because then we want to open up for Q&A. <laughs> so my final question would be, I just think it's really interesting... That you're still an MP. Because, you know, lots of leaders, after they've been party leaders, kind of go off and do other things. But you're still here and I'm still getting your passion. And like when I watch you in Parliament, you're just as passionate as ever. And I just wondered if you could share with the room, like, what gives you that passion and energy? I know you've just shared a bit, but could you share a bit more? Because it'd be a
2: nice, hopeful note to end on as we think about this subject. Well, again, what's ambition all about? And I think, so you you do see people who've been prime minister or party leaders or senior ministers, and when they give Up or feel they're forced to give up, there's a kind of air of despondency about them. It's i oh, I've reached the top and it's all over now. I mean, to my mind, it was a great honor and a, a duty almost to lead the Liberal Democrats. It was a, always a modular job, and I did module one, which was stop us dying, which I suppose is fine. Um, you know, so there were other things we could have done, but you know, it was, not, it was not an interrupted leadership in the sense that we, you know, we, yeah. we could have evaporated to nothing and we ended yeah. up going up by 50%. So that's not bad. It's an absolute joy to be a mm. member of parliament, to serve my community and to do other things that then get brought in with it. So, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm the MP for a glorious bit of the country, but human beings are glorious wherever they live. If you are made in God's image, you are an ultimate lofty dignity. Um, and so wherever you are from or wherever you live, you matter massively. And it's a, what an honour it is to serve people who are made in the image of God. But it's even it's slightly even nicer if they live near lakes and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not but in I, Hammersmith and I, Fulham, but I, yeah, it's also lovely. We're all right. All, We're it's right. all right. But in the end, I think also just I think that there is a sense of kind of liberation. I, I think it's in, being a team player is is a, is a is a is a virtuous thing. So people who are always contemptuous of the whip, I think they're not as virtuous as perhaps they think they are. I think there's a bit of selfishness about that. So I think being a team player is. Is good. It's why sometimes I'm a bit cautious because I just don't want to bring the party into disrepute. I don't want them to, I don't, I don't want to be that ex leader who's a pain in the backside. Mm. So it's important to serve the current leader who I've got a lot of time for, Ed. He's a good man, but there is a sense of freedom because the nicest possible way, I have no desire to do any other job. I don't want to be leader. I don't want to be a minister. I don't, um, you know, so long as the folks of Westman and have me, I'm happy.
0: Brilliant. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. OK, guys, we're going uh, to work our way s- through some of these questions. First up, Tim,
1: why is Christianity so opposed in left parties such as Labour, Lib Dems and SNP, but OK in the Conservative Party? So
2: I don't think that's true. Um, and I'll say two, two things. First, first of all, um, my Bible study group tomorrow morning will be, I'll have moderate Labour Labour, SNP, Independence in the Lords, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, Tories and me. And so I think it's a real mixture. I think that there is a, a tendency to think that, uh, potentially because if you look at the last words in the Bible, when it basically warns us not to either subtract or take any, or add to anything in the word, the liberal left inclination is to subtract from the Bible and to say, oh, well, that, that doesn't matter if I do that. It doesn't really say that. Real generalisation, but it's an observation. And that's heresy, by the way. Um, and, and there's a right-wing heresy, which is to add stuff. And so if you look at... America is a great example, but there's a little bit of it in the UK, where Christianity is part of a, an array of traditional em, emblems Flags and guns and monarchy and stuff like that. And some of those things are good in their own right. But the the danger is that the, the left tends to try to uh, tip out Christianity and the right wants to corrupt it. And I think we should be equally suspicious about both.
0: Interesting.
2: Really good answer. So...
0: Ta. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the second question would be, could you ever imagine out-and-out out Christian as a Prime Minister in this country
2: I refer you to my podcast today so really today, yeah so today well, I um, is it
0: that's it, a mucky business a mucky business, a so mucky today business. I
2: interviewed a wonderful guy because he's a Catholic priest called Father Vickers which is brilliant <laughs> uh, but, but Mark Ma Vickers he's a wonderful guy he's written a book called God in number 10 and it's the the faith of our Prime Ministers from the 20th century from Balfour to Blair now He does a good account on every single one of them. There are many practicing Christian prime ministers during the 20th century. Uh, I tried to lure him into the 21st, and he hadn't done his research. and (laughs) Draw your own conclusions. So I think the answer is yes. You have to navigate carefully. The bottom line is that Christianity is always, should always be, countercultural. So if you're in any culture where your faith does not jar a bit you're doing something wrong. So there is a sense in which it should be difficult to be a Christian and to lead any country because if you believe in grace, in other words, not maximising the vengeance that you feel you should take on against people who do wrong, if you believe that you are not... God of yourself, but somebody else is God of you. That is instinctively countercultural to all of us. So yes, I think a Christian in any culture, even one which is avowedly Christian, ought to be rubbing up against that culture because that's not how we're built.
1: There we go. Nice. Okay, this one has been rapidly f- uh, flying up the list here. Why? Do- <laughs> this is a, this is a good one. Why don't politicians give honest answers? Surely this appeals to the electorate who are fed up with the very things you were talking about in terms of dishonesty.
2: The honest answer to the question about why politicians don't give honest <laughs> answers is because often – well, let's look at Jesus. How often did he decide not to answer the question he was asked because he was being set a trap? And if there's a trap in front of you with big neon light saying this is a trap, don't jump into it. Walk around it. Give them the answer they should have asked, the question they should have asked. Now, I think it's my, – my general take is if somebody asks me a question, I have to judge do they mean it. Are they genuinely interested in the thing that they've asked or is this a trap? And sometimes also if you've got 90 seconds or a minute's worth of oxygen of publicity and someone's asked you a question, then you spend the first 10 seconds answering their question. Then you say the thing you meant to say in the first place and the thing that you really want to get across. So I think it's often because people don't want to get trapped into saying a thing that ends up in the papers. So sometimes dishonesty is is not dishonesty. It's trying to avoid being, you know, letting the side down, letting yourself down. And sometimes it's plain dishonesty.
0: Thanks. Um, okay. Alistair Campbell said, We don't do God, renew Labour. What's mm. the best way personally to do God whilst not putting people off in politics?
2: So, I, first of all, I think if you ask Alistair Campbell that, and I have, um, he didn't really mean it the way it came across. He just didn't want Blair being harangued on the issue at that particular... He, well, the issue was, he has been asked over and over again, did he and George W. Bush pray together during and in the to Iraq? And he did not, referring to my previous answer, he did not want Blair to give what was probably an honest answer, because I think they probably did, uh, that would then be over the over the newspaper. So he just blanked it out. But that's been taken as a indicator of, of how things are in the UK And in the, in the States, I think there's only one avowedly atheist member of Congress in either houses. I can't believe that's actually true, but avowedly, that's, uh, up front, that's the case. Um, so you've almost got to pretend you have a faith in the States to be taken seriously and to be electable, whereas in the UK, you've kind of um, got to pretend you haven't got one in order to be taken seriously. The bottom line is... That I think that Christians and have not done a great job in defending and promoting a the gospel and b the rational reasons why it's okay to believe. So, for instance, is it okay for a person of faith, let's say the Christian faith, to be influenced by their faith in how they involve themselves in politics? And lots of people say no, they must leave it at the door. I think well. Should a Marxist leave their views at the door? Should somebody's read Milton Friedman and agrees with every word on monetarism and free market economics leave that at the door? Or have we to accept that we all have complex worldviews and they are what we are and who we are in a genuinely liberal democracy? We bump up against each other. There is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. There just must be respect between different views. Of course, people can take their faith with them into the sphere. And arguably, arguably, it's good if they do because we could do with some values in politics we could do with people who feel that there's something else to live for rather than them being what they want to be
1: brilliant i think that's a great note to finish on
2: Huge round of applause okay
0: tim thanks so much brilliant Thanks a lot.